Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about traumatic legacies, reconciling our emotional baggage. My first guest is Dr. Galit Atlas. She is a psychoanalyst and clinical supervisor in private practice in New York City. She is a clinical assistant professor of the faculty of the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, as well as faculty at the National Training Program, NTP, and the four-year adult training program at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies, NIP, in New York City. And she's in the house to talk with me about her latest book, Emotional Inheritance, A Therapist, Her Patients, and the Legacy of Trauma. Welcome, Golly. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Lisa. I'm very excited to be with you today. Oh, I'm excited to dive into this conversation, which is a theme that repeats itself over and over again in our lives, certainly in the context of the show and the episodes that focus on this subject matter. But just to allow our guests to understand what we're talking about today, which is emotional inheritance. Describe what you mean by this. Emotional inheritance is the idea that emotions, feelings, memories, and especially traumatic experiences, can be transmitted from one generation to the next and held in our minds and bodies as our own. Yeah. So, right? It's, and so the book is about the link, right, between our parents' and grandparents' history and especially their traumatic history and our own emotional struggles. And, you know, I am a fan. No, you don't know, but I'll tell you. I am a fan (laughs) of this show on PBS called Finding Your Roots. And I don't know if you've ever watched the show, but it's a professor from Harvard who really does a deep dive into the histories and the family trees of well-known people. Hmm. And this subject matter comes up in the context of researching and finding our roots and the stories that we know and then the stories that we don't know. And then when we find them out, we go, aha. It's exactly that, right? I don't know this show, but I feel like that is the experience that I have with people who read the book, that they read it and they say, huh, okay, that makes sense. And I can think about my own life. And let's maybe give a little bit more context. You know, oftentimes I see a lot of people who suffer from substance abuse disorder. Mm. And when they talk a little bit about their family stories, they talk about the legacy of addiction or the legacy Mm -hmm. of sexual trauma or big upheavals in the family's lives. And they never connect the dots until they start telling the story that there's this replication of the theme. 
Right. Our stories always include past, present, and future. Yeah. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how our emotional inheritance is transferred from generation to generation, because it's not just through behaviors, right? Right. So, you know, I think we're usually looking at the intermingling of nature and nurture, as we always do. And we know that trauma impacts the next generation through multiple pathways. My focus is much more on the unconscious and the attachment piece, but I do mention the research on epigenetics and the biological part, and we work together, right? As a whole, we understand that each impacts the other. Now, what do I mean by the unconscious and the attachment? I think the the framework that I work with in emotional inheritance is that the idea that we are attached to the people who raise us and we start our lives not being differentiated from them, mm-hmm. which means that we feel them, so to speak, with quotations, Mark. We, we know them from inside through the attachment. The attach, attachment is the unit that helps a child survive. And through the attachment, we unconsciously communicate with each other. And, you know, it's interesting because part of what I'm talking about is infant research, the research that follows babies from the moment they're born and their parents and the communication between them and the understanding that for their survival, babies are tuned into their parents and they know everything about them and they respond to everything. And we see that in the microanalysis of um, the video macroanalysis. So what we're looking for and what they're listening to is not only what is said, but also the pauses and what is not said the gaps. What is not said is part of what we respond to. And therefore, the omission is present as much as the story itself. This is fascinating. And I would love for you to describe a little bit more about attachment and the types of attachment that we as human beings feel. You know, again, attachment is the unit. It's the unit of the parent and child. And that unit that helps the child survive. You know, Bowlby was the first person who talked about it in the 80s. And back then he thought about attachment, secure and insecure attachment. Uh, Back then, the insecure attachment was anxious or avoidant. And since then, we added a third definition of insecure that is usually the most complicated one. And that's the disorganized attachment. One of the interesting things about attachment is that the attachment research is done not through the reunion, you know, and I think that is something that people do not necessarily know, because when we think about attachment, we think about how we, if we love each other, if we're connected to each other, how do we connect to each other? But the research itself is actually about children. Back then, I think it was mostly mothers and separating them. And looking at the um, re- and the moment of reunion, and uh-huh. how right isn't that interesting? That and is interesting. That, yeah, and you see, and that's where the two first definitions started, with how the avoidant, what was called the avoidant attachment style, is where when the parent come back and the child ignores them, <laughs> and that's of course in order to manage the feelings related to separation, or in the anxious attachment style, when a parent when the parent comes back, and the child behaves as if the, the parent did not come back, and keeps crying and crying and is still distressed, and that is again 
as a way to right a way where we look at it and say, okay, this child is is an anxious child. It's not about the child. It's that this unit is an anxious, right? Because we are thinking about attachment as something that is includes the parent and the child. So the child is also picking up on the parent's unconscious or silent emotional life as well. The child always picks up on the parents, right? I think that's part of what we're talking about, that the child is tuned into the parent and the child picks up on every, and the baby even, I would say, not just the child. I mean, the attachment, the beginning of the attachment uh, research was on with children. And I know this when I'm talking about infant research, the research is on infants who are three months old, six months old, 12 months old, very, very young babies also. And you see that even through what they're trying to do now in more contemporary attachment and infant observation is to predict the attachment style through looking at the interaction between a parent and a baby. And one of the most amazing conclusions that changed our whole view on what a baby is, is understanding that babies are communicated from the moment of birth, that they really respond to the parents. You know, in the old days, Psychoanalysts used to think, they used to call it the autistic phase or, you know, that babies do not, act, they're, they're, they're not communicative. They don't, they don't uh, communicate with their parents. But now we know that that is not true, that babies actually communicate not only one-on-one, they actually feel the whole system. They, can, they could, you know, evaluate a whole family dynamic. scary (laughs) potentially very scary (laughs) Um, i think it's true that it's scary but you know on the other hand we feel that this is it's it's pretty amazing but this is how the, the baby learns how to survive talk a little bit about disorganized attachment for a second because you said that this is a a newer category yeah the disorganized attachment it's the attachment style that in some ways is the most complicated one. And you see that in the videos where what you see is that it defines by the fact that the person, which is usually the parent, who is supposed to protect you, who's supposed to take care of you, feed you, nourish you, is the one that scares you and hurts you. And so you could see that that sometimes is related to abusive relationships, but not only. You know, I think in the early, in the early videos with babies, we can see parents that are very traumatized themselves and they communicate with, I mean, for example, one, one thing in, in Beatrice Beebe's, she's from Columbia University, an infant researcher that I love. And she, and I reference her in emotional inheritance. There is a moment when you see a baby and a mom and the baby is really sobbing and they pause the picture, right? So in one side, you see the mother and the other side, you see the baby. And what you see is that the mother's face doesn't match with the baby's face. So the baby's crying and the mother is smiling. Mm. Now, of course, that is not because she is not impacted by the cry, right? It's the opposite. It's because there is something that probably is more overwhelming for these parents or more, or they have their own trauma that the, the child's cry reminding them, right? Touching and, and, and they need to manage their own feelings. So, but that is a, sometimes it's a, a way to predict future attachment that something does is not fit. And this is troubling in a sense, because we as humans were, were complicated and we don't intend to hurt the people we love. And yet 
this gets transmitted and then we assimilate it as our own stuff. Yes, yes. And you know, I think that that is true that we are, I, I don't know a parent that is, um, have a baby and want to hurt them. The only cases that I'm familiar with is what I call in the book, unwelcome babies, where babies that parents really didn't want to have, and they have much more complicated feelings about them. But most parents who want to have their baby do not want to hurt them. And then some of what is transmitted is, for example, some intergenerational transmission of abuse or of aggression or of hurtful behaviors. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I'd love to dive more deeply into emotional inheritance and talk about the ways emotional inheritance can nurture us and then talk a little bit about grief and secrets and confusion, because I think this is something that gets revealed to many of us in adulthood, you know, not knowing some of these stories, the stories appear, and then what do we do? How do we process these revelations? Sounds great. To learn more about Dr. Galit Atlas, please visit galitatlas.com. You can find her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Galit Atlas. And I want to mention that on Instagram, it's Galit underscore Atlas. We're talking about emotional inheritance, a therapist, her patients, and the legacy of trauma. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Galit Atlas. We're exploring traumatic legacies, reconciling our emotional baggage. Let's get back to the conversation. So, Galit, before we get into some of these other subjects that I wanted to talk about, grief, secrets, confusion, etc., mm-hmm. I would love for you to share maybe a short story from your book that illustrates what we're talking about here. Each chapter of the book is a different angle of the same topic of emotional inheritance. And the book is divided to three parts. The first part is our grandparents and the second part, and generational trauma, the second part is our parents, s- the secrets of others, which is really about the way everything that happens in the family and kept as a secret from us at the beginning of our life or before we were born. And the third part is called secrets we keep from ourselves. And we can talk about that. So the theme of secrets is going through the book And I'm going to give you a short example from the second section of The Secrets of Others. And that is the story of Noah. A piece of that was actually published in the New York Times, I think in 2015. It was actually how I started writing the book. It was the first piece that I wrote for this book. And Noah was a patient who came to me with what he called obsession about dead people. How did that look? He was really, really interested in obituaries and he would just look online and search and try to understand who these people are. And when he read the obituary, he sometimes Googled these people and tried to learn more about them. And his family thought that this was a very bizarre, as he called it, behavior. 
And as we go on, when we talk about his early life and we talk about his, who he is and where he comes from, he tells me this fantasy that he thinks maybe he had a twin brother uh, that died in birth. And he said that he actually shared that with his parents with his, and his mother used to dismiss him and say that he's, oh, stop with these fantasies and be really, get really upset at him. Just as an aside, then you, we can hear how something is transmitted in, even in what is not said, right? And we're talking in the book, I call it the ghosts of the unsaid and the unspeakable. And I don't know if I should ruin the end for you, but I think I will. Do, <laughs> That's do, okay. do. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to tell you the end of this story because the end of the story is that Noah, his mother died at some point and he found out that he actually had a brother. It was not a twin brother. It was a brother who died a few months before he was born. And he found that because his parents decided they will never share this secret with him because they didn't want to, so to speak, burden him. That's, that's of course, oh. the reason why parents keep secrets some, yes. sometimes. Not to save. <laughs> to save you. We don't want a new baby to be burdened by this uh, brother. He, they named him after his brother. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And I think what we learn, and, and he got into that moment when his mother died and the parents had this agreement that they will tell him this uh, information only when one of them died because they would be buried next to the grave. Of Noah the first. Yeah. Noah one. Noah one. Right. And he was Noah two. And we're talking really about how we process that information, of course, before it happens with the fantasy and the understanding that he feels something about his family history, but he doesn't fully understand what it is. He, and he can't process it, of course, because it's a secret. And then find wow. out. Yeah. And so, you know, what's interesting to me about this specific story is that when that happened, both Noah and I, that of course gave me the permission to write and publish it back then in the New York Times, thought, you know, this is a pretty esoteric story. Nobody has stories like that. This is like, and then it was published. And then I started getting so many emails from people who tell me similar stories about twins, about siblings, about apparently, and I think that is an interesting thing. I have a whole section in the book about siblings there are a lot of people and maybe some of our listeners who had an experience either with their own siblings or their parents' siblings that died and that kept as a secret in the family, either in order to not burden the younger people or just because people really did not want to think about it. Or they feel shame about it not being a conventional family unit because there's yeah. there's the, the the skeleton in the closet or this yeah. traumatic event that in my experience and I, without giving any details is it mm -hmm. takes us out of normal yeah you know i think that is really right and a lot of secrets are based on trauma that is shameful in the book i, I share some of my own experiences i have my parents both my parents lost siblings and i think my my dad who was born in iran in his generation, that was a normal thing. A lot of babies died from illnesses. And so in that generation back then in Iran, I think 
that was just something you didn't think about. Not that you didn't think about it. You didn't want to think about. Yeah. You were like, okay, I have seven more kids and I should be strong for my kids, right? Then my mother lost her brother and I share that a little bit uh, in the book. He drowned in the sea when he was 14 and she was 10. And in our family, that was not a secret. We knew that, but we never talked about it because we knew that my mother was uh, destroyed to some degree emotionally as a child by that death. So we were very careful to not touch her wound. And I think part of my intergenerational trauma is really that in our family, going to the beach and uh, and water is a very loaded uh, thing. Yeah. It's probably subtle, right? It's not talked about. Well, maybe now it's talked about because you are aware and this is your profession, but. Right. But for my family, it wasn't. Even after I I wrote the book and my family members read it and suddenly people from my family said, wow, my children are afraid of water, but I never actually made the connection that it's related to our uncle who died, you know? And I think that is one of the things that we find that our mind sometimes attack anything that might create anxiety any link that creates anxiety and pain. So we dissociate and we have a whole defense mechanism to make sure that we don't remember or where we don't make the connections. And I think part of our emotional work is to, to make connections. Yes. To make connections, to tell the story because we realize we're not alone. You know, that the through line through Mm -hmm. each of our stories actually binds us to one another, which creates more secure adult attachments. Right, exactly. Secured. And it's important maybe to say as we continue our conversation about attachment, that attachment styles are like templates, right? But those are things that can be changed, Yes. right? When we have new attachment figures, when we do it all over again. And, and that's the good news about attachment is a pretty optimistic theory, I have to say, because part of what we say, even about ruptures, is that ruptures are part of every relationship you know, Tronic and Cohen have this research that I love about the fact that 70% that good enough parents make mistakes 70% of the time. Whoa, that gives us How a amazing. lot of leeway. Right? How amazing. <laughs> That's hopeful. <laughs> right. But what I think what they, they focus on really is the repair, not the rupture. They say you can have ruptures, but then the moment of repair is the important moment. It's the great when you reattune. Yeah. I'm thinking for a second, I'm flashing to an incident with one of my own kids of sort of that, them needing to take a step back, them needing to exercise autonomy and Mm -hmm. disconnection for their own growth, right? To properly fly. And then that moment of reunification where there's the realization that, oh yes, this is actually a safe and good place. And to be met with like the open door, like Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I knew you had to do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, Winnicott, who is a, was a British uh, psychoanalyst, used to say that the most important role of uh, the parent is to uh, survive destruction, <laughs> which means that children <laughs> will try, right? Children have their own aggressive impulses. They need to separate. They need to, they do, have to do a lot of things. And can we survive it? What does it mean survive it? It's not uh, physical survival, right? The emotional survival means that we don't withdraw, and we don't revenge, retaliate, right? But that we, we show stay, up. Yeah, that we show up and stay stable and can, can manage and contain our own pain. 
And I think this is the sign of our own, as parents, of our own healing and growth. Yeah, absolutely. Because we carry those hurts from our own childhood and the generational inheritance. And then when we can come to the present day relationship, whether it's with our child or our partner, and not reference that old material in our response. Yes, and our job as parents is to do the work, right? To do the hard work. Boy. <laughs> yeah, Boy, oh, it's right. It's really hard work, and it's uh, you know, and and we can't expect anybody to say thank you to us for that. Thank you so much, mom, for doing this hard work of you know, of healing yourself. Yeah, you know? never, you, never. But we know. <laughs> We know. And if they like hanging out with us when they're adults, I like, I, I always laugh, like that's the sign that I was good enough. You know, they like to come home and hang out, even though they have their lives. Yes. Yes. That's a good thing. We could talk all day about this. We need to close. And I wanted to just touch upon the becoming ourselves, because I think that's really the prize of this work. Yeah. The prize of this work, work is that we can become ourselves, that we can tolerate pain, right? That we could actually be with whatever life brings us. And I'm talking about, right, of course, it's ideal. Life brings a lot of pain with it and a lot of trauma also. Yeah, it does. It's the risk and the reward of being alive. (laughs) I think that is really true. You know, it is that. It's like, because the other option is to always go in sideways, right? Always try to avoid, uh, always try to not feel everything because it could be painful. And so I think the reward is that we have a whole range of experiences that we can tolerate. And that allows us also to fully live and to love and to take take risks, uh, including, I think, love is a risk, always a risk. Always. Loving people. <laughs> so I agree. <laughs> that's the biggest risk we take in, in life, I think, is loving other people. I urge you, listener, to buy this book, to gift this book to those that you love. Emotional Inheritance, A Therapist, Her Patients, and the Legacy of Trauma. My guest today has been Dr. Galit Atlas. To learn more, please visit galitatlas.com. And you can find her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Galit Atlas. And on Instagram, it's Galit, G-A-L-I-T underscore Atlas, A-T-L-A-S. Galit, thank you so much for sharing part of your day with me. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was wonderful. Let's take that quick pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're talking about traumatic legacies, reconciling our emotional baggage. My next guest is Elizabeth Rossner. She is a best-selling novelist, poet, and essayist. Her most recent book of nonfiction, Survivor Cafe, 
The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory, was featured on NPR and in the New York Times. It was a finalist for a National Jewish Book Award and named one of the best books of 2017 by the San Francisco Chronicle. She's received literary prizes for her novels in the U.S. and Europe and is based in Berkeley, California, where she leads writing workshops internationally. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to jump into this discussion because oftentimes we think that the histories of ourselves and our families are only bound to us or tied to us by what is immediate. And you and I had a wonderful conversation before we started this recording about sort of the the legacies of uh, multi-generations and the traumas and family histories that travel with us as we move forward in life and then get imbued into our children and their children and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think sometimes people get nervous about this question because it starts to sound like we're doomed to carry what has happened before we were even born. And I don't like to think of it as something negative so much as something to get very deeply curious about. What is it that you know, a long time ago, we used to just call this, well, even Jung called it collective consciousness or the collective unconscious, things that we didn't even know how to name, that we could feel in our bodies or that we could sense in our nervous systems. And it's really only recently, relatively recently in the last decade or so, that science has started to name this as something measurable. There's empirical evidence that traumas, events, calamities, experiences that occur during our lifetime, modifying the expression of our DNA, for example, in our cortisol levels, which are our stress hormone levels, those get transmitted to subsequent generations. So children, grandchildren, we don't even know how many generations yet this transmits and carries in our bodies. So the question for me is, How do we know? How do we identify those places in us? How do we start naming those things so that we can transform and heal them? It's interesting. As you talk about this, I have little sort of thoughts blasting off in my mind when we look at substance abuse, for example, in family Mm. histories, or Mm. we look at survivor syndrome of, let's say, families that have survived the Holocaust, you know, and the impact on multi-generations after those survivors have gone on with their lives, yet some of the elements of the original person's trauma passes to the children. Right. So as a daughter of two Holocaust survivors, both of my parents have passed away. My father actually just very recently passed at the age of 93. My mother died much too young at age 70. I grew up with their stories, but also their silences. I grew up with what felt like unnamed sometimes fears. I was hypervigilant. I was always expecting to, you know, something calamitous was around the corner. There was a catastrophe looming. And even though if you had asked my parents, they would have said, oh, we have no wish to scare our children. We have no wish to make our children grow up living in fear or mistrust. On some level, they almost couldn't help what they were sending to me as messages because I already carried them in my body. I already carried 
these memories in a way that didn't really belong to me, and yet they felt a part of me. So in that literal sense, in yes, in Holocaust survivor families, among my peers, that generation born, we were born well after the war. My parents were teenagers during the war. They yeah. weren't even adults themselves during the war. But what we grew up feeling often, and I'm generalizing now, of course, what we grew up feeling was it was as if those terrible things had happened to us. And that's what they've started to realize, that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors show up in therapy with symptoms that seem like PTSD, that seem like they themselves have been traumatized. And so now we're starting to extend that outward to all sorts of other generations, communities, cultures in which we see that, oh, if you grow up Black in America, you've got a history, an ancestral history of coming from many, most, coming from enslaved people in your ancestry. And Mm -hmm. here's the thing that I think is even more important than that. Well, that's pretty important. But I just want to say that Even if you don't identify as a member of a culture that's been traumatized by attempted genocide or any kind of atrocity, simply by being part of the human race, part of the human experience, we all collectively carry that. I agree. And I think it's important to to talk about some of these other genocides and atrocities that we might not think of, but realize just how bad we as humans can be to one another. So we don't always think about that, you know? Well, and I want to say that, again, as I started out by saying, you know, people think of this as doom-ridden conversation or dark subject matter or too scary, too disturbing. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. I actually believe the opposite is true. Me too. That's the you know, the way toward hope, the way toward optimism and resilience and even happiness is through these passageways that lead us into scary territory that isn't so scary once you start to shine a light on it. So we are collectively carrying human history. So that means both the victims and the perpetrators. So the work I've been doing, let's say, with connecting, I didn't initiate this work, I participated in it, work that was bringing together descendants of Nazis with descendants of Holocaust survivors. People would think, oh my gosh, why would you ever want to be in the same room with someone who was related to somebody who tried to murder your family or did murder parts of your family? But in fact, what happened was we recognized, all of us born after the war, that we were carrying stories and weight of guilt, shame, anger, rage, sorrow, grief, all of this, we could actually see that we shared it in common and that we needed to, we needed to look into each other's eyes. We needed to listen to each other's stories. It wasn't even about like forgiveness or apologizing. It was about humanizing each other. And that's the key to all of this stuff, is that we accept that we are all sharing and carrying human history. And, you know, you talk about the deep listening, which I know is the subject of a new book that you're working on. And I want to, I want to also touch upon that because that is part of the medicine. Exactly. I think that 
it's so complicated, right? <laughs> we are wired in some ways to listen to what's familiar. You know, we we start listening in utero and the sound of our mother's voice, the sound of the vocabulary and the language and the melodies of what our parents are saying or what our family members are saying all around the mother's body, all of that is being incorporated into us. And so we enter the world tuned in to a certain kind of sound, a certain kind of vocabulary, a certain kind of set of messages that includes messages of trauma, messages of suffering, messages of mental illness sometimes, messages of terror, rage, all of these things. And so that forms the way we listen to the rest of the world. It shapes what we are expecting to hear or what we want to hear, what we are afraid to hear. So part of learning to listen deeply is to notice what is getting in the way of our listening to what's actually being said or what's actually being communicated. And in the book I'm writing, I'm actually also listening into interspecies communication. We only recently, this is in the 1970s, we only recently, and I say we as in European Westerners, recently started recognizing whale song, recently started understanding how elephants are communicating through vibrations in the earth. Whereas indigenous cultures already knew this stuff from their ancestral DNA and their ancestral messages said, of course you listen to what the trees are saying. <laughs> of course you listen to the wind. Of course you listen to the insects. You know, we're, we're catching up kind of late, the we, again, as in the we Westerners, we Europeans. We're, we're, sometimes we're really slow on this stuff. And I also think in these indigenous cultures that you describe that they embrace trauma. I mean, there is an understanding that the tribe or the clan or the group will go through things that are difficult. And there are rituals, there are ways in which that is handled within the community. Whereas in Western culture, we want to compartmentalize it and lock it away and not assimilate it into our being, if at all possible, because it's so distasteful. So true. So true. I write about that in Survivor Cafe as well, this idea that in tribal cultures from ancient times, when someone went out of the tribe to be a warrior, to be a hunter, they didn't just come back into the tribe and sort of return to so-called normal life as if all of that was behind him now. And of course, it was almost always the males who were doing that, they understood that there was a transition that needed to happen out of warrior mode, back into gentler, kinder, more empathetic, more compassionate mode. And, and that took rituals, practices, deep shedding of a kind of almost toxicity in their bodies. And when we in World War One started denying that there was such a thing as shell shock, yeah, soldiers' denying, heart, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh! And all the way up until post-war in Vietnam, when when veterans from that excruciating battlefield, excruciating mm. environment, excruciating experience of internalized racism, on and on and on, they were being told PTSD was imaginary. It was only in the 80s that we really started to acknowledge there was such a thing as post-traumatic stress. And 
we are still kind of trying to decipher and decode what are those effects, how are they so deeply residual in the body, and how do they affect the entire family and the entire community. In your book, Survivor Cafe, The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory, I want to relate this to the sort of the soul retrieval or a healing of moral injury, because I Mm. think that this is a big part of what happens in these conversations, right? When we talk about it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because moral injury is so nuanced and I'm so intrigued by it because even just seeing those two words together for most people would raise like a big question mark. What? How can you injure your morality? <laughs> what kind of injury are we talking about? But what I've come to understand about it is that we aren't only wounded by what happens to us or or whatever we might do to cause harm we can also be wounded or injured by failing to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what extends outward to a community, a culture, a nation. The idea that failing to do what's right when a situation demands us not to look the other way, but calls out to us to say, I need to stand up, speak out, put my body on the line, put my words on the line, that means we are all collectively responsible for what happens. And that goes backward into the past and forward into the future. We're going to take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with my guest today, Elizabeth Rossner, to learn more about Elizabeth and her book, Survivor Cafe, The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory. Please visit elizabethrossner.com on Twitter at Elizabeth Rossner and on Facebook, Elizabeth Rossner Books. And you can find Elizabeth on Instagram at E-L-I-Z-R-O-S-N-E-R, a little bit different. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back continuing the discussion about traumatic legacies, reconciling our emotional baggage. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest today, Elizabeth Rossner. Elizabeth, prior to the break, we started to talk about, or you wanted to take us to talk about the upstander in contrast to being a bystander. And I'd love for you to elaborate upon that. Well, it may sound like just a differentiation of terminology, but I think it's really key to the question of action of not just being a witness who's passive, but a witness recognizing that if injustice is occurring, either in your immediate environment or anywhere in the world, asking yourself, what can I do? And I know for some of us that 
gets us into a state of overwhelming helplessness. We feel like these problems are so much bigger than any individual can address. And yet, I think you can you can almost dig down into the subtleties of your own behavior in the world. For example, if you find yourself using the word immigrant rather than the word refugee, you are missing an opportunity to empathize with somebody who is here involuntarily. And I mean here in the United States, for example, somebody who has fled a war zone, somebody who has had to send their children across the border because they had no hope their children would even survive adolescence if they didn't live elsewhere. Refugees are people who are suffering, they are victims, and they are not here just because, oh, they want a better life. These are people who are needing our empathy and compassion and support. So even changing a vocabulary word, refugee is different. It carries a different emotional energy. And then I'm talking about, you know, of course you can look at your favorite causes or who do you want to send money to, or who do you want to keep on your radar so that you know breaking news and you know what's happening in the world. But I'm just talking about on that human level of empathy and compassion, recognize that these people are you, you are them, yeah. but for fate, you you may be living in safety, whereas somebody else was born into a crisis that they didn't create themselves. I think that's a very good point. And when we look at all the conflicts that exist in the world today, I think they're a surprising number, right? I mean, I think there are dozens of wars going on at any one time, many of which we're not even aware of. But the bigger ones that we are aware of, we try to put out of our minds collectively because it's so unpleasant. And sometimes there is so much disinformation and misinformation out there that we may not even find the facts unless we go digging for them. And I'm thinking, for example, about Myanmar. One yes. of the reasons <laughs> one of the reasons I got off a personal page on Facebook, I only do professional stuff on Facebook. I don't use it often at all, is because I really felt like Facebook was enabling these propaganda reports about the Rohingya in Myanmar. And there was a genocide happening against the Rohingya that the Myanmar police and army and government were perpetrating. And it was not being accurately portrayed. It was being portrayed in the opposite way. And what China is doing with the Uyghur, what happened in Rwanda, that was a media supported. The genocide in Rwanda, which I also write about in Survivor Cafe, 800,000 Tutsi were murdered by the Hutu with machetes. This was human being against neighbor. The yeah. Hutus, the Hutus were promoting this genocide by referring to the Tutsis on government radio as kill all the cockroaches. And wow. so the dehumanization that led to this ability was exactly what Hitler did in Nazi Germany. And guess what? Mm -hmm. Hitler's model, Hitler's model for demonizing, racializing, stereotyping, dehumanizing Jews was borrowed from American rules about Jim Crow and about enslaved people being less than human. And he borrowed that language, borrowed that imagery, applied it in Europe, applied it to the Jews. And then the Rwandans did the same thing. 
Pol Pot in Cambodia did the same thing. The Syrians, Syrians are treating the Yemenis in a similar way. And I, I, I'm sorry to say this, the list really could go on. It, it, indeed. And when we talk about also what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, with, with the withdrawal of U.S. forces, and now you have Afghan killing Afghan. There's a civil it's, war going yeah. on. And, you know, again, I fear that your listeners are going to say, ah, stop. This is too excruciating to listen to. It's too depressing. And I feel like we can't look away just because we want to feel better about our own lives or we want to turn toward the places where we can do good. I mean, you still can work in your garden. And I mean that both literally and yes, I, I get what I get what you're saying completely. It's like you can't look away, but you can do something. And whether it's making a contribution, whether it's making a phone call to your representatives, whether it's boycotting purchasing products from a country that has these kinds of policies. I mean, there are right. ways that we can do something so we don't feel so impotent and traumatized right. by what's going on. Right. And again, because I spend time talking about language in my book, I, and, and whenever I give talks, I emphasize these things too. Words really do matter. Don't borrow and repeat, you know, slogans or slang that you've heard just without checking it first. I mean, the smallest example, but not small, is when we talk about the Vietnam War, the Vietnam War, it was the war in Vietnam. The Vietnamese called it the American War. Yeah. Vietnam is not a shorthand for a war. Vietnam is a country. Same with Afghanistan. Yeah. Same with Iraq, Iran, the Middle East. I mean, our language matters. And that's why I was using the example of the word refugee also. And genocide is not a term that people use lightly. When you hear a professional, an expert, an international war crimes expert saying, yes, what is happening in Myanmar, what is happening in China, what is happening in Yemen, these are technically now considered genocidal government practices. Take yeah. that seriously. This is not a small kind of local conflict, regional difficulty. Genocide is genocide. Yeah. And genocide is never good. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, that, that sounds, like, sounds like such a trite comment, but I mean, if, if there's anybody that thinks, well, maybe that that was appropriate at some time in place. No, it's not appropriate. Well, I think that Americans have a history of wanting to believe that we are good. You know, we were talking about moral injury before. We like to believe that our constitution is based on morality, that we believe in human rights, we believe in human dignity, we believe in freedom and justice for all. I mean, even when I was a kid, I worried about the potential hypocrisy. I knew that there wasn't freedom and justice for all. There still isn't freedom and justice for all. No. We still don't have equal rights. We are backpedaling on human rights in this country. And some of that goes back to the fact that we've never fully acknowledged the genocide of the native people of this land. It goes back to that. Yeah. And I'm talking about our American origin myth. Yes, <laughs> myth. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right. And so I think, you know, some of what we talk about when what can we do, it's learn your own country's history. Learn your own 
backstory, get it right, get the facts, get the story from the indigenous storytellers. Don't only get the story from the white people's story. I think that's uh, very, very valid. And I think understanding our own histories, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's very hard to capture that oral history from our loved ones because they want to bury those unpleasant parts of themselves. And it's really understandable, right? I mean, I think shame is one of the most powerful human blockages we possess and how we want to manage shame by silencing certain parts of ourselves or silencing certain parts of our family histories. I mean, I know there are people wrestling with what happens if you have, you know, multi-generational ancestry in the United States where your family owned human beings? How do you wrestle with that? It's not yours in the sense that you aren't responsible for it, but what does your responsibility include? Germans mm. are a great model for this. They are. They're, yeah, post-war generations, third and fourth generations post-Nazi Germany, the grandchildren of Nazis, the great-grandchildren of Nazis, they are demonstrating what it looks like to take a really painful history that you could feel endless shame about and trying to turn it around and do what's right and do the good in the world to own that history, to name it, and to take responsibility for healing and transforming the planet. That's in the human story as well as the global story. I think what I often wonder about in the context of collective history is the editorializing that is going on about what our kids have access to in terms of books, what's taught in school. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking mm-hmm. about policies on, you know, when is it okay to talk about gender? I'm, I'm talking about sort of facts of history. Yeah. I, I mean, it, to my mind, it is an insane conversation to even be having. Like, why would you not want to teach the facts of American right. history? And, and I, I know that not everyone agrees on the facts, but I don't actually believe that there is such a thing as, you know, you're entitled to your facts and I'm entitled to my facts. What is that? Alternative facts? Isn't that what what someone coined that phrase? (laughs) Truthiness. Remember back in one of the Bush administrations? I can't remember which one. Truthiness. It was like approximate truth. I mean, opinions are opinions and facts are facts. Even children who learn the most fundamental aspects of critical thinking are taught the difference between an opinion and a measurable fact. So history, even though it can be buried, even though it can be attempted to be whitewashed and distorted and covered over, there are facts to be learned and facts to be taught. And children who grow up in the United States need to know the U.S. history, including its most shameful parts. Slavery. Native Americans, what we did to Japanese people and other Asian cultures in the internment camps. I mean, that's a pretty dark period of our history that we tend not to ever talk about. Yeah. Even though I'm a first generation American and I could very, very easily kind of say, well, I didn't cause it. My family wasn't here. My ancestors weren't culpable or perpetrators. Not so. I, as a white person who benefit from all the privileges accorded to me by virtue of the color of my skin and my, you know, my privileged status in this culture, that gives me even more responsibility to look back at that history and address it. 
I agree. And we need to teach our children the same because exactly. then the, the stories die if we don't talk about it. And when the stories well, die, it, they repeat themselves. <laughs> that's exactly what happens. I mean, when Hitler said, who will remember the Armenians? Yep. He was certain that the genocide of the Jews, the attempted genocide of the Jews would be a, a piece of cake, basically, because the Armenian genocide, which had taken place in 1916 and had by the 1930s essentially been covered over, they don't even know how many Armenians were murdered by the Turks, maybe 1.5 million, maybe 2 million. The Turkish government to this day considers it a crime to say the words Armenian genocide. It is illegal to say those words. Do you see now why I think words are so powerful? The government is trying to suppress them from being spoken. That means it's a form of acknowledgement that it really happened. That really occurred. And therefore the government bears responsibility for it. So same with the United States. In order for us to acknowledge lynching, in in order for us to acknowledge the number of thousands, tens of thousands of indigenous people that were murdered by white European settlers that were displaced, that were whose culture was destroyed. Naming it is the beginning of addressing the healing of it. Yeah. On an up note, before we close, I, I think we should talk <laughs> about meaning making and mm. how that restores or builds resilience and allows us to find the sweet spot or the light in this darkness that is part of the human condition, no matter where we are in the world. You know, as my own small example of this in the world, I believe that along with all of the other things I inherited from my parents, I inherited a belief that I am here to contribute something. I am here (laughs) to be of service. You know, that when my father would until literally his dying day, grieved the loss of 1.5 million Jewish children who were murdered and never allowed to fulfill their potential. He lived his life along with this belief that if he was here, he had to make a life meaningful. He had to live a life of purpose and a life of contribution. And that got transmitted to me. And including that sense of no matter what happens to me, no matter how many obstacles are put up in front of me, you know, I've had breast cancer twice. I've been through my own many multiple layers of suffering and loss in this lifetime. I still commit myself to being of service in some way. And one of those ways is writing books. One of those ways is teaching. One of those ways is helping support the voices of others, helping bring light into the world And that doesn't mean looking away from the shadows. It means using my voice, using the gifts I've been given to help lift up others. And therein is where joy resides. That's certainly where I find mine. Yeah. Elizabeth Rossner, thanks for joining me today. We've been talking about Survivor Cafe, the legacy of trauma and the labyrinth of memory. To learn more about Elizabeth Rossner, please visit elizabethrossner.com, on Twitter at Elizabeth Rossner, on Facebook, Elizabeth Rossner Books, and on Instagram at E-L-I-Z-R-O-S-N-E-R, Eliz Rossner. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing part of your day with me. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate getting to talk about these meaningful things with you. Me too. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Gali Atlas and Elizabeth Rossner, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.